What's up, everybody? My name is Joshua Stein of the J. Stein Law Firm in Atlanta, Georgia, and welcome to the next episode of Sports and Torts, where each week we sit down with our friends, colleagues, and peers, and we discuss sports, law, and business. We have a very impressive lawyer as a guest today. As you all know, I do personal injury work, which consists of car wrecks, truck wrecks, dog bites, slip and falls, those types of things. Our guest today does what we like to call smart people lawyers work. He does mass torts. He's going to explain to that, explain that to, to us today what that means. Um, he goes up against the biggest drug companies in the world. He goes up against the biggest medical device companies in the world, the Johnson & Johnsons of the world. He practices in federal courts. He practices in states all across the country. I think he's going to teach us a ton about how that type of law works. His name is Rob Hammers. My friend, welcome to the show. You're too kind, Josh. Um, it is probably a law for dumb people because you commit yourself to many years of labor before you ever make any money. So uh, for the smart lawyers, they do cases that they can resolve in a short order. And I like uh, long, drawn-out, scientific, Daubert-heavy litigation. So, so that is fair. Uh, it's not the smartest economic quick you know, type of law, but I think it takes the most, you know, intellectual horsepower to get through the cases. So uh, we look forward to you describing how that works today. But anyway, you know, I like to set the, I like to set the scene. Uh, you're here at my office. Uh, we are drinking Bloody Marys. Um, and, and I chose that today because today's date is the first week of March. Uh, spring is in the air. You know, golf is picking up. Masters is right around the corner. Um, and so I wanted to, you know, I always drink Bloody Marys out of Master's Cups. It, it, it just felt right. Found a new Sriracha hot sauce Bloody Mary mix, which I had not had before. But uh, Sriracha, I put that stuff, quote, on everything. So I love it. I got to say, it's pretty fabulous. It has the right level of spice. It's a great way to start off a podcast. But to uh, bring some of the Master um Bouginess. I, I brought some uh, champagne to, to have with our uh, Bloody Marys this morning. And uh, if you're ever in the Napa Valley, I recommend you go to Mom Napa, enjoy the view, do the tour, and have some of their uh, fantastic Blanc de Blanc. A, a whole bunch of moms. Remember that line? A whole bunch of moms. A whole yeah. bunch of moms. <laughs> no, right. they do. It's a great soft landing, you know, in, in Napa to get your day going. So, yeah, I guess after y'all do y'all's multiple years of, of just blood, sweat, and tears, and you, you've earned yourself a you know, nice champagne toast at the end, right? That's right. And for some of us, uh, a couple bottles of Rothschild. There you go. Well, we'll get into that down the road, I'm sure. Well, look, uh, introduce yourself. T tell everybody you know, who doesn't know you, you know, where you grew up, where you live now, family, all that good stuff. So I was born in uh, Charlotte and grew up in uh, Gastonia, North Carolina until uh, the mid-80s. Uh, and we came on down to Georgia uh, with my father's promotion. He worked in insurance. And um, we live in Woodstock, Georgia. I went to Etowah High School and then on to the University of Georgia and uh, then to Florida State for law school. Um, so I... Uh, have been here a really, really long time. I consider myself a Georgian. I got two daughters, um, uh, and uh, they were both born at the baby factory over at Northside. So I really am a fully converted Georgian, but uh, my roots are North Carolinian. Now, we were not in Athens at the same time, right? You think you were maybe a—maybe we were there, maybe we overlapped a little bit. What year did you graduate, Georgia? I, if you go to the Tate Center Wall, I graduated in 1998. 
Okay. If you look at my diploma, I graduated in 1999. Who's right, who's wrong? Uh, it, it, the diploma speaks, right? <laughs> uh, so I, I took a correspondence course uh, over the summer, um, and I, that correspondence course from over the summer got turned in on the last day of a 12-month cycle in order to get a grade. So I graduated in 1999. The degree is the degree <laughs> is the degree. Now, now, I went straight from undergrad UGA to law school at UGA. You took some time off in between. Um, you mentioned you went to Florida State. You went a little later in life when you were 30, right? That's right. Uh, so uh, my first job after UGA, I went down to Austin and Bird and worked in their securities litigation practice group. It's kind of like a, you're going to go to law school. This is what big law looks like, and here's what you can expect. And also you can earn some money and um, and get some letters of recommendation. So it's a really cool program, and I was excited about it until I started working. <laughs> Didn't enjoy it. What does security securities litigation. litigation even entail? Essentially, from my level of purview, was it was big boxes of documents that I had to index and file and put numbers on. So yeah, uh, <laughs> that doesn't sound very fun. I, but uh, yeah, but but from the the broad liability perspective, it was essentially um, in corporate transactions or st- stockholder um, suits of whether or not you were meeting SEC requirements for your disclosures and your financial reports. And so it was usually shareholders or subsidiaries suing uh, parent companies or transactions that went bad and they're, and they're disputing the valuation. So did that propel you directly to law school? As, as, the, as the program was kind of meant to do? <laughs> it propelled me to grad school. Um, <laughs> but maybe not law school. Yeah. I was a history major at UGA, okay. and I loved it, man. I so loved it. And I, the best things I ever remember from undergrad was that huge difference of um, round table. Uh, you read a, a historical piece um, from, of history, and then all the students would talk about, you know, its significance. And you learn the difference of... Uh, cultural history versus, you know, top-down history. And it, and it was passionate for me. I enjoyed it, but I didn't really see a future in it. And I guess you'd be a professor or work in academia, right? I mean, that's that's the choice, right? I mean, I guess you could be cool and write books, but... You could live in Athens the rest of your life and work at UGA. Well, that was the dream, right? I mean, that, that, I can think of worse things. But uh, when you get into graduate school, and I, I did the PhD program at Georgia State and was in the master's-driven program as a GRA, um, you, you watch the system, right? And you're in this program and every year when they hire new professors, they're on a short contract and they went to Brown and they went to Cornell and they went to Michigan and they went to Stanford. And I was like, where does Georgia State professors go? And they looked at their shoes and I realized I don't know where they go and they don't know where they go, but you get a PhD. So um, it it was pretty uh, relevant to my decision that, you know, I always wanted to be a lawyer um, even though I didn't like the, the practice of law and big law and where I was sitting. So I decided to leave a Ph.D. program and got a job working in um, legal technology support. I basically sold document coding from summation and concordance when it first started. And this, yeah, this is 20-something years ago, 15, 20 years ago, where it's not like the technology we have today. But that's cool. Back then, you were even getting involved in it. It was like 1999 to like 2004. Five that I was in that that world of academic and then um, and then working in legal support. But the coolest thing was I met trial lawyers, right? So for the first time in my life, I saw a plaintiff's case presented because I would go to court and do trial director like our good friends at LTS. 
and um, run that program for them and pull up their exhibits and blow up their documents and make timelines and all that kind of stuff. And I was like, dude, I want to do this. This is much cooler than sitting in a big boardroom looking through documents. I'm back. And and indexing them and then people telling you that you're not allowed to talk to associates, that you can only talk to other clerks and you can't. You can't go to lunch with paralegals. Yeah, I was like... So so the fire is now reignited in your soul. The passion for, for the law is back. And uh, you make the decision, you know, start another round of law school down in Florida State. Which, by the way, why does their football team suck so bad now? Do, I mean, are, do you follow them at all? Yeah, so obviously, you know, I'm a huge dog fan. Everybody who knows me knows that I'm ridiculous uh, about m- my dogs. But... When we had a really bad uh, weekend and I couldn't make a, a road trip to wherever the dogs were playing, I did go to more than you know six or seven of the of the tally games when I was in uh, tally, and it's tally is that the locals call it? Tally? Yeah, tally is what we call it. Okay, yeah. is it a pretty cool city? It's a really cool city. Um, it's very it's South Georgia. I mean, it, it's it's live oaks, you know, Spanish moss. It's uh you know Spanish architecture, but it's also you know, colonial architecture. It's um, this uh, the state government seat, so you get a real close tie to the um, to the legislative stuff. And as you know from my GTLA work, I'm very um, heavily involved in the legislative process. So. Um, I loved it, right? I loved Tallahassee. The the uh, the law school has a rotunda. It has that whole um, uh, Parthenon. I mean, Pantheon. Um, uh, quad that gives a University of Virginia feel um, and then more of an Oxford library like corridors for the classrooms directly across from the basketball stadium and conveniently located to this bar called Potbelly. So on I Fridays, to to Belly. I've never been to Tallahassee, <laughs> but I, I knew that somehow I've heard of that place. I knew we were going to get there. So before we talk about, you know, your, your career as, as a lawyer, I do think that there's probably some pretty good words of wisdom you can share to people that are in their twenties. They've maybe bounced around from, from one type of job to the other. You know, they, they're afraid to go back to school, student loans, debt, all that kind of stuff. Like, what would be your advice to somebody that is, you know, 30 is still super, super young. Hell, 40 is super, super young. You have all your life to do things. So what, what advice would you give folks to do what you did, which is, hey, this isn't like I'm not right out of college, but it's something I want to do. I'm going to go back to school. Yeah, I mean, that that's such a great question because the reality is, is, you know, we may have an eternity and in, in in heaven and all of you know what you believe, but our time on earth is finite, right? And like you really gotta love what you do. If not, it's a grind. And and being a lawyer is a grind, but I absolutely love it. And I couldn't do anything else. You love it. You, you you're always smiling. You're very upbeat, talking about it. You're passionate about it. And I think it would have been terrible had you missed, had you decided not to go back, and you never would have gotten into it. Because who knows what you'd be doing. But I I will say that while I think I waited a little longer than maybe I should have to get my legal career started because it was a path for me, it was what what I was meant to do. It is important, and I think it is very, very good advice for young people graduating from undergrad to live a little bit and to do something besides uh, uh, pursue the next step of your chosen path because you may hate it. And we know lots of lawyers that absolutely hate what we do because they had no idea what it meant to be a lawyer. So I very much agree with you that taking at least that, that one year, you know, go somewhere, go live out west, go work at a ski lodge, go overseas— 
is very healthy. I think that the fear for a lot of folks, me included, is if you do that, it's hard to turn back on that student clock. Or if you go start making some money and you start buying some things, it's hard to then undo that. So, you know, there's no right way, there's no wrong way, but I think that, that your perspective is, is, is helpful to hear. Um, and I'm glad that you made the decision. So. M- me too, but I, I will say that it is a challenge, right? I mean, I, I got called grandpa. <laughs> I mean, I'm 30 years old. Hey, come on, guys. And these guys are like 24. I'm like, I'm not that much older. I than can you. hang with y'all just fine. <laughs> yeah, don't you worry. Yeah. But I was definitely called old. So when you when you um, when you graduated from Florida State, did you stick around in Florida? So um, to become a Florida State Seminole and to become a local Floridian to get in-state tuition, you have to declare yourself domiciled. <laughs> so I did that, and I applied and, and talked to firms in Orlando and um, Pensacola and Panama City and Tampa, um, but it was 2008, and the for, uh, mortgage crisis had happened, and all the work was foreclosures, right? I mean, your job was going to be to go take people's homes that were all on arm only, <laughs> <laughs> you know, mortgage-backed securities. And that wasn't for me. I wanted to be a trial lawyer. So I, I uh, came on home to Georgia with no job, no prospects. It is a little difficult, right, in a bad economy and from out-of-state law school, even one as good as Florida State that's as close to South Georgia as possible. You don't have the built-in network graduating from UGA or Emory or Georgia State, Mercer. That's right. And, um, and it was a bad economic climate. So I struggled, you know, I got my law license and um, I, I did uh, appointed work in the Cherokee County um, uh, courts. I worked for a solo doing some community association work and some divorces and a little PI, some transactional work, but I was interviewing. And I finally got an interview with a Florida law firm that had expanded to Georgia that was doing insurance defense. And I wanted that job. Burns and bowling. Yep. Okay. Now. I love when I can ask a question of somebody like you on the podcast where I know the answer to this and you don't know I'm going to ask you this question because I happen to have lunch with one of the one of your mentors Kevin Shires last week and your name came up and he said oh man he said the story of you know me hiring Rob is an all-time classic (laughs) so I want to see if the story that you tell lines up with the story that he tells in terms of how your interview with him went. So, first of all, uh, Kevin Shires was my mentor. I mean, he gave me the best opportunity. He's a great guy. Such a great guy. I mean, and a lot of people get frustrated with him because he, he, um, he likes to tap your cage. But he's really one of the finest people I know. And he likes to drink as much as I do. So he and I are not just former boss and employee or legal colleagues. He's probably one of my top five best friends on the entire planet. Well, I'm hoping the story told me is true then if he's this good of a friend of yours. And it is. And, and, um, and so, so what happened was is, you know, I knew I needed a job. Like I, I had a baby that had just first had my first baby, Madeline. And, you know, I needed a real salary, not, you know, whatever I could earn on my own with no tutelage and no a mentoring. I needed, I needed a job. And I knew I wanted to be a trial lawyer. And so I really wanted to get good training on from a defense firm. So I understood how to work up a good case. And I was sitting in the interview, and Vernon Bowling is a multi-office 
corporation where there's only two partners and, and Robert Bolin and Jeff Burns are good guys, really good guys. And, um, and they have this insurance model where they have minty offices, but they have managing attorneys and then silos and you handle a book of business. So they sat down to me and they said, I just want you to know there's no partner track here. This is a, uh, you know, a meritocracy that's formed like a corporation. I said, I don't give a shit. Um, just give me an effing chance. There you go. That's exactly, those were, those were his exact words. I appreciate you saying effing for, the, for this is a family show, but he said he has never had a, a, a someone who was being interviewed say it like that. And he's like, I guess we got to give him this effing chance. Like, you know, how, how can we tell this guy no? Yeah, yeah. Ian and, and Kevin tell me often when we see each other, we relive this story, you know, as lawyers are wont to do. And and it is true. He's like, no one's ever cussed in an interview. I don't think anyone ever will again. But boy, was it appropriate for 2009 when I, we knew how hard it was. And all these kids that are coming out of school have this, like, pedigree and this expectation. And they're looking for a big salary and they're looking for promises. And you just wanted us to let you work, and boy, did I. Yeah, that's right. And that, I think that's such good just, just you know, approach to different things. Like, just give me a chance. Let me prove myself. You know, you don't owe me anything, but let, let me give me the opportunity to succeed, and God, I, I will. So good for you. I, lo- I love that. I, I, I don't want to fast forward through all of your time at Burns and Bowling, but I, I do want to make sure we save enough time for the other stuff. You're, you're – decision to leave Burns and Bowling and then how you ended up at your next job, I also think is fascinating because you shared that with me. Yeah. Um, so, so my brother-in-law got T-boned in an intersection on a failure to yield case. And so I, um, I signed him up. I said, Hey, you know, Kevin, Ian, can I, can I sign up my brother-in-law? And they were like, well, let's run a conflict check. And just for, to be clear for everybody listening, that's a, your firm was a defense firm. They were doing all 100%. defense work representing the companies that the you know, injured folks were suing. Absolutely. 100% insurance defense. I did uh, tractor-trailer defense, fire law, subrogation work, and industrial accidents, uh, elevator, escalator cases, stuff like that. Um, and so I went to my bosses, and I was like, hey, Kevin, Ian, can I can I sign up my brother-in-law? And they said, let's just run a conflict check. And fortunately, they didn't represent in any of their offices that insurer. So I just sent a pre-suit demand for his rotator cuff tear that he wasn't going to get operated on and got like a $100,000 tender. Yeah, this is great. <laughs> this is amazing. I'm getting paid like sixty five grand for my job, which I felt was very, very good wage and I was grateful for. But to get a $33,000 you know, check on one case, I was like, I'm on the wrong side. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I knew I wanted to be a trial lawyer anyway, but then it really, like, it really was brought home. So I was like, cool. And, I, and I'm grateful to them. They paid me a third of that fee as a bonus on on bringing the case in so that was really cool on their part but I still, you know, but seven, you're like, I'm out. You know, I mean, ten thousand dollars versus thirty three thousand dollars. It's like that's how my salary. Even with cash. your math skills, you yeah. can figure that one. Out, <laughs> it's right. like I might have been a lawyer, but I can do that math. I can take forty percent of anything. Yeah. Um. So. Um, so I started looking on Craigslist. Craigslist. Uh, Incredible. <laughs> Incredible. And I wasn't looking on Craigslist for a date. I was looking, or, or, or a TV or an iPad or anything. I don't think they had iPads in, in 2000. Is Craigslist even still around? I mean, I know it's around, but do people still actively use it? I, I really, um, I don't know the answer to that. I imagine that um, there are certain segments of the population that might be looking for so, certain, certain uh, ladies of the night that may be on Craigslist. So, so an earlier podcast, Emily White, who's a good friend of mine, she, she found one of her jobs through the newspaper classifieds, which that's how people got jobs 10, 15, 20 years ago. You got a big time 
you know, law job through a Craigslist ad. That's right. So uh, my uh, now uh, law partner, Jason Schneider, um, has been, you know, solo practicing law for ever and just, you know, high reputation, great guy. You probably saw him when you did defense work. Um, and he does, you know, autos and slip and falls, you know, routine general negligence stuff that we all do. Um, and he was busy enough that it was more work than he could handle. And he just needs someone to come in. And so he had put a, he had put an ad out on Craigslist looking for, you know, attorney insert qualifications. You're like, hey, I'm that guy. Boom, done. Yeah, we, we met at uh, at Joey D's right actually right around the corner from your office, and um, and it hit it off instantly because he's he's a tremendous human being. Uh, he said to me, he goes, "Now look, this is a job where we we think about the clients, we do the right thing, and then the money will come. And if that's how you're wired, then then this could be it'll work out." And I was like, "Dude." I just want to represent plaintiffs. I don't want to represent insurance companies. And um, you, you'll never, you know, regret it if you give me a chance. And um, again, you know, get, say nothing. Give me a chance and yeah. I'll prove myself. Two years later, you know, we, we had just won a verdict down in DeKalb County that was a pretty, pretty good verdict. And um, he just said, hey, do you want to be partners? I'm like, yeah, of course I do. So, so the here fir- we are. So the firm name is now? Schneider Hammers. Yeah, and you guys have lawyers and staff, and it's great. Now, what you didn't mention about what Jason was doing was the mass tort stuff that you're now doing. So how did you get into that? So um, I think this story is probably um, similar to most lawyers that end up um, on paths that aren't the traditional you know, you're recruited, you're hired to the biggest, best plaintiff's firm, and you're given this pathway that's pay for you. But for the entrepreneurs and the, and the sluggers, it happens this way. So a client came through our door because we represented her brother in a car wreck really well and left a great impression. And that client told his sister when she went to the hospital and said, I'm having shortness of breath and, and, and tightness, and got a CT scan, she had an IVC filter, which is a blood clot filter that prevents pulmonary embolisms going to your heart or lungs. Um, by It's just like a little badminton claw that they put in either through your uh, femoral vein in your, in your leg or your jugular vein, and they, they drop it in with a catheter sheath, and they deploy it, and that little badminton opens, and it points down at your legs and feet. So if you blow a clot from your lower extremities, it catches it, right? And it sits in it for a while and it disperses over time and then it won't go to your heart and lungs and, and potentially kill you with the pulmonary embolism. So product sounds great. Um, it was uh, cleared by the FDA and it didn't sell a lot. So they dev- designed a retrievable filter so that you could use it for a broad scale of type of, of, of treatments and um, you could take it out when the risk was gone. So it made doctors use it more. So the companies made more money. Here's the problem. Because it's retrievable, it would tip over or it would spread out and it would go through the vena cava vein where you place it and it would perforate it. And as you as you breathe or sneeze or go to the bathroom, your vena cava is constantly retracting and expanding. It's called Valsalva. And over time, or cycles, this thing breaks, it fractures. And then once it fractures, it's off to the heart, or the fragments are off to the heart. And that's what happened to my client. So obviously a much more complicated case than a car wreck, um, but you know, I filed it in state court in Fulton County. I got removed to federal court. I tried to remand it, and I lost. Um, so well, I'll just stop you right there. So, so I don't have any really smart questions to come back with with yeah. your description because 
I just don't. Right. Um, you described it very, you know, very good. The, the takeaway for me, though, is that it's what well, you just said. It's not your normal car wreck case, slip and fall case. And you're like, okay, I believe this woman. Something here isn't right. I'm going to go figure this out. This isn't, I've never done this before. This is a very unique issue. And so what do you just start grabbing books, internet? Like, what do you do? So uh, Westlaw um, and spent a lot of time learning uh, federal preemption, uh, the federal drug and uh, food cosmetic act of the 1970s. And I learned what the FDCA says about preemption, uh, what the pre-market approval process is, what uh, 510K clearance means, and how you can bring a suit. And lo and behold, out of dumb luck or God's intervention, uh, she has a case that's not preempted by federal law, and I was able to pursue that case. All right, so we're, we're, we've successfully figured out how to do the case. The courts have, have basically given you the right. They haven't kicked you out of court, yep. right? So you, you pursue it. Right. And now you know what you're doing. Right. Right? Yeah. Well, I had no idea what to do. But here's, but here's, here's the best part is um, because people do a Pacer search. You get, a, you get a new drug case. You get a new product case. The first thing you do is you go to Pacer and you say, anybody else doing this? Or you get on AAJ's listserv, on the product liability listserv. And you're like, anybody seen this problem, right? So I did those things. And um, I, I found on Pacer a couple of lawyers. Great guy. Awesome dude. Ben Martin out of Texas. And a really, really great guy out of uh, Newport Beach, California, Ramon Lopez. And so I contacted Ramon and Ben. And they made me local counsel for their Georgia cases. I made them local counsel for my California and my Texas cases. And they told me, hey, if you just give us some money and you advertise, we can sign up a bunch of these cases and we'll put the pressure on these defendants to uh to settle these cases i was like what how does that i'm not giving you any money are you crazy so um so then i uh i i met brandon smith and andy childers because this is what they do Brandon's a beast on this stuff. We and, love him. And one of the finest humans I know. I mean, Brandon's just a fabulous 100%. resource, fun me, guy. Me, you, and him sat together at the National Championship game with Dave Rich, Jason Gans from Vito. I mean, That's right. Brandon is, is top of the class. So I call. So Brandon and I get to know each other, and Brandon so he, Brandon encourages me to, to just refer this case out and, um, and, and to learn. And he tells me about this conference out in Vegas called Mass Torts Made Perfect. Right. And so that's put on by a really big plaintiff's firm in Pensacola, Levin Papantonio. And they and and they have it in April and October of every year and they tell you what's going on in mass torts and they kind of market to lawyers to come out there and spend some money to get cases and then let them work it. But from from this case I had that I was working on and these people that I met and these relationships that I began to build, I got to know a lot of people. Um, I, I worked hard. I started to build an inventory and uh, ended up on steering committees in the IBC filter litigation, which is extraordinarily difficult to do. So when you say mass torts, um, as opposed to like a class action, I mean, I think most people are more familiar with like class action lawsuits. They see it in the paper. They see, you know, so-and-so gets whatever. What's the difference? So that is the first question, the main question that you always get. And, and, and realistically, a class action is a one case with all prospective plaintiffs of generally. I mean, that's not per- precise. But it's an economic case. It's based on some kind of consumer or economic damage. And it doesn't have a component of the individual injury that a personal injury plaintiff suffers. So in mass torts, it's called multi-district litigation or state court. MDL, we see. 
you see MDLs all the time. And what that really means is, is everybody has their own complaint, their own case number, and they're captured and they're consolidated under one judge. And the judge oversees all issues that are common to fact and law and governs the process of litigating the case over a course of years. And then once the decisions are made about um, causation, liability, you have bellwether trials, and they take a sampling out of these groups of thousands of plaintiffs. And the bellwether serves as kind of the precedent for everything else? The benchmark for settlement. Benchmark, yeah. And so, um, and that's essentially what happened. My case that started off this whole IBC filter litigation with some other lawyers who had cases similar throughout the country, uh, got a summary judgment ruling by Judge Shub, rest in peace, um, and that decision of denying summary judgment and allowing our failure to warn and design defect and punitive damage claims to go forward was the bedrock support from which federal judges that handled this IBC filter litigations uh, relied to allow these cases to get to Bellwood. That's awesome. Good for you. And so now you've got the confidence that, hey, I can handle these cases. I can do it at a high level. And you focus your entire practice on it now. Is that right? That's right. So I've got a ton of like in the weed type questions um, that I don't think we have time to get through all of that stuff. Um, it's fascinating to me. It's just such a different kind of stuff that I do. I think that what, what people might find just as interesting though is like, who are some of the names of the defendants that you are filing suits against? What states are you traveling to? What courts are you in? And then once you discuss that, like we always see in the headlines, not always, but you see like these, you know, eight figure settlements with these companies. Like how does that actually play out in practice? That's a lot of questions, but I'm gonna let you take as much time as you need to kind of talk through everything. I'm gonna unpack it and, and give it to you guys in a very um, digestible chunks. So the first thing is, is that you kind of sue the same people over and over. So you get to know their lawyers and you get to know their, uh, their defenses and you get to know their positions on how to get the cases resolved. And they hate some of us and they like some of us. And so some people can settle easier than others, but by and large, it's the same as anything else. It's a personal injury case, it's relationships and it's hard work. But here's the thing. You're suing Johnson and Johnson all the time, right? You're suing Bayer all the time. You're suing, um, you know, uh, GSK. You're suing Abbott. You're suing Tava. These All the are biggest players. Medtronic, you know, Boston Scientific. You know, you just, li- you know, you name the list. My uh, Bard. <laughs> I say he's Bard over and over and over and over. And, uh, and so essentially you start to know who their defense lawyers are and, and what their defense strategies are and how they litigate the cases. Um, but here's how settlement works. Um, you, you kind of have to really, really litigate hard to get to a point to where it's even conceivable. Years and years and years. Yeah. You have to, first, you have to overcome preemption, which is in, in the federal regulatory scheme that, that approves medical devices and drugs to go to market. They have to, they have to get through the FDA's clearance process. And under certain types of cases, going through that process bar state law claims, by and large. And other types of processes don't. And so for medical devices, for pre-market approval, the first time a device comes to market, you have plenty and pl- tons and tons and tons of regulatory uh, clinical trials to get that approved. So your avenue for recovery is very small, and most courts would bar it. And is that to vet out the BS claims? 
No, it's to promote uh, research and development in public health, right? It's a, it's a because the federal law preempts state law, and because the desire to keep our population healthy, it's important that they can't be sued to innovate, right? And that makes sense. But the problem is, is they manipulate, they take advantage of the FDA's um, systems, and then they use the the backdoor ways of getting things approved to put cr- products that are not safe onto the market, and so. Medical devices, if you if you get one approved product, every subsequently approved product, if it's substantially similar, can be cleared by 510K. Those are not preempted cases. So those are your safest kind of cases to take as a mass store because preemption is not your problem. And I have to prove pre- routine product liability defect, fail- design defect, failure to warn, you know, uh, manufacturing defect, and then you know you're off and running. And most most cases in product liability fall on warnings, so you're really war- warning driven. But and you're taking countless depositions, countless experts are involved. I mean, how many documents are you pouring through in an average case? It's more like terabytes, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you have to use uh, targeted uh, technology assisted review (TAR), right? And you have to have computers kind of serve you up documents with certain parameters so that you. Is can... it as simple as putting in like keyword search terms? So that's the that's the way the defense wants you to do it. Uh, but using artificial and business intelligence and um, technology assisted review will help you identify documents, and then the more you find documents that you flag is super hot or highly relevant, the more documents the system will serve up from you from the terabyte of documents in the database that are similar. What's the best smoking gun document you found? So, I mean, they're all um, uh, under protective orders, but generally speaking... I don't want you, I don't want you um, in trouble here. Today. Generally speaking, I've had a CEO um, get an email from a medical chief medical officer that says, we got a problem with this product. And we may need to take it back to design. And the CEO's response was, keep your foot firmly on the gas pedal. Ouch. <laughs> that, Ouch. One, that one is a good one. Yeah, um, that one pops up. You're like, yeah, yeah, Houston, yeah, they yeah, have a problem, yeah, I imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sell it, right? So there's tons of those. Emails, so the best thing was emails. Now the best things are slacks and text messages. Um, but yeah. And I imagine it's a fight in every case to get that discovery, right? I have, I'm in... The executive committee for a, a, an IUD, a women's uh, contraceptive that's implanted, um, and it it breaks. Our allegation is it breaks when you take it out, and it's defect, and, and that the warning is inadequate. And we have started an MDL. There's 900 cases in the in the litigation, and we haven't gotten documents yet. <laughs> and we've been and the MDL was formed in December of 2020, so or 2021. Right. 2020. Yeah, December 2020. So we're a year and two months in, and we're and discovery has started. We've prevailed on all the pre-judgment, all the preliminary pleading motions, and discovery started, and we're still trying to get them to give us our first. So document. when people see in the news, you know, these big, huge settlements with these big companies, and they're like, "Oh, these damn lawyers getting rich again." I mean, I guess they need to understand that there's a lot, 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 lot that goes into all of those, and it's years and years and years, and it's grinding work. Right. And so let's talk about what the lawyers care about, and that's settlements, right? So there's two ways they settle, right? One is global settlement, right? Which is, hey, we're done. We want to pay this amount of money. We tell the judge, we tell the plaintiff's lawyers in this the This is community. Johnson Johnson deciding, whatever it is. We're done. We're done. Let's take Zarelta, right? They decided we're done in Zarelta. They, they won that case, but they still needed to settle because the cases had causes of action that could go to a jury, and there was 25,000 cases in the litigation. So they needed to buy their piece. So they paid $750 million, right? 
which was um, not a lot per claimant, um, came out to be about 30000 per claimant on average. And so there was a global settlement. So the money's put into a special fund called a qualified settlement fund, and a trustee is assigned. And the trustee evaluates each individual claimant's medical records, comorbidities, statute of limitations, state law um, uh, issues. And trustee's an independent third party? Correct. A lawyer, a judge, um, and um, they uh, and they assign matrix points. They basically point out your, each claimant. So everybody across the grid of potential claimants have some objective scoring method from which to assign dollar values. And then you send out the settlement packets to your plaintiffs. And as long as your inventory hits the threshold, well, that's well. In in a global settlement, you just submit to the trustee. Trustee tells you what you get your client signs it and their case is over and if they don't like it then they get remanded and you got to try it in your local federal court after the MDL is over Uh, that's how that's how a global works and then what mostly happens is called an inventory settlement so let's just say Johnson Johnson likes Rob Hammers and does business with Rob I work up my docket I get them all the data and they decide that they're going to take my 200 plaintiffs and they're going to offer me you know this for my grid of plaintiffs I still because I have an ethical obligation to all my plaintiffs, can't go through and pick and choose how much the money should get applied. So I still have to hire my own trustee and set up my own qualified settlement fund, send that money to that trustee, and let that trustee do that same process, but only on my settlement. Do you have more um, sway in terms of making arguments for the particular value one way or the other? You get to communicate uh, with your trustee about what you think is important in the matrix grid, but it's ultimately his independent or her independent um, uh, objectivity that makes it, you know, um, uh, an an ethical settlement for all of your claims. Got it. So, so we'll use the numbers that you just used: um, seven hundred fifty million dollars, twenty-five thousand plaintiffs. Right. Um, how many of those twenty-five thousands, on average, would you be representing at one time? So that's the that's the thing about mass torts. The bigger you are, the more you have. I, I'm in the I have a few hundred universe, um, so I have enough to where defendants will talk to me. I get to get on committees and I get to work on the cases and actually try the cases. But some people who do this industry are called aggregators, so they just get as many cases as they can. That the commercials we see, yeah, mesothelium, you know, uh, call me for this. And they and what they do is they take private equity. You can borrow money at. Uh, I mean, like Tony Soprano wouldn't even do it, right? But you can borrow this money and you can fully fund an entire mass tort practice with private equity and um, and have 10,000 cases, right? How do they find the 10,000 people? Um, it's just a barrage of the TV, radio, and digital advertising from a third-party marketer. They say, are you experiencing these types of symptoms? Have you had this type of a problem within X time frame? If so, call this number. That, that's that's legitimately what happens. Well, what they will say is is that have you ever used this product and had any injuries and you might be entitled to substantial cash? Call this number, and then once they call, they have a, a, a intake criteria like we all do in any case. But in an MVA case, if someone calls you and they got rear-ended and the other guy got a ticket, it's pretty case. easy. It's pretty pretty easy. Case, yeah, it's like right? push report, <laughs> ticket, boom, done. I, bet, I imagine your vetting process is a little bit more difficult. It, it, it is very difficult, and once you get them through the, this long winding road of all of these different, very scientific and product-specific inquiries, and you've qualified them through the funnel, then you send them an intake packet, they fill it out, they sign it, and they send you a HIPAA authorization. And that's when the fun begins, because unlike a, 
a PI case where you know if you got a good one and you get limits and then you and then you've got injuries and you put your ingredients together and you send out your letter and you get a tender well in in mass torts it doesn't work that way you've got to just you got to prove they use they actually use the product they signed up that they said they use they have the injury that the case is about and that the statute of limitations and the statute of repose is good right and once you have those three ingredients in play you can file your case and and it's summary right a complaint is a one-page document called a short form complaint how this operates it's kind of weedsy but what I do is I, I litigate the cases. So what we come up with is called a, a, a master complaint. And it's all the allegations that are generic to any jurisdiction in the entire United States. Uh, failure to warn, design defect, manufacturing defect, consumer law claims, warranty claims, fraud, punitive damages. Kind, all right? of it. Right, all of it. And then the defense challenges it. Preemption, failure to state a claim, shotgun pleading. They throw, they throw the kitchen sink as a 12B6 motion. When you survive, that master complaint now is the anchor complaint. And each individual in the litigation just files a short form complaint that says, my name is Jane Doe. I live in Delaware. I got hurt on this day. My doctor was this, and these are my claims. Check, 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 check. Sign. And that's it. That's all it takes to practice a mass torch. You pro hoc vice straight into that district court without a local counsel, and you file directly into the MDL, and your case sits. And then 60 days later, you fill out a fact sheet. And so unlike discovery in our cases, in single event litigation, cases you're real familiar with, there's no objections, there's no hiding the ball, there's no waiting to see if they follow up and send you a 6.4 letter. you got to give them a full blanket of authorizations. you got to give them the medical records that show the dates of use, the injury-related document, and you got to fill out a summary data sheet that tells them everything about your claimant from do they have a bankruptcy, have they had prior claims, all that kind of stuff. So when like depositions take place, how do those get scheduled, managed, who attends, who doesn't attend? No depositions. No depositions. See, I'm so ignorant about the process, I don't even know that that, that didn't take place. Well, it's in, it's un, it's not feasible, right? If you've got 100,000 That's why I asked the question because I can't imagine how it would even be feasible. So think so um, the combat earplugs that are being litigated down in Pensacola that are manufactured by 3M. There's 300,000 former servicemen and women that have claims that are registered in that MDL. Imagine having a, a 3M hire uh, 300,000 lawyers to take 300,000 deputies. Can't imagine. So all right, here's my next dumb question. I get a truck wreck case, and the driver comes up with whatever excuse they come up with, right? They never accept responsibility. I take that driver's deposition, I take the corporate representative deposition, and, you know, I convince him or I you know, do a good job where he then you know, either admits that he was at fault or it's so clear that he was that we can then prove to the trucking company they need to you know, settle the case, pay the case. How, how do you guys prove your cases if you can't take those steps? Okay. So in your individual claimant cases, all you got to do is file your short form complaint and your fact sheet and your case is parked, right? But in the background, the committee of lawyers on the executive committee and the steering committee are reviewing the terabyte of documents, taking the corporate depositions, taking the fact witness depositions, and working up the experts. So a, a smaller committee of folks are doing that discovery. Correct. Got it. Okay. That's what I was missing. Okay. And, and here's and how so, they get And you've gotten in, you're on those committees. Correct. And this is how they get paid. So um, you're back to hourly work, right? So I'm on a committee. And my role is bellwether trial. So I'm going to try the cases, right? So my job is to go through all the depositions, designate the testimony that you want to play in court, um, 
uh, interview the witnesses, prepare the witnesses. And every hour I spend on the case, I bill to the common benefit. And let's say there's 25,000 cases like in Zarelto. Um, every single case of your 40% in, um, attorney's fees, 10% of that fee is taken from every lawyer who files a case, and it goes into a uh, escrow account. And then the lawyers that are on the steering committee that do the work on behalf of everyone else take a pro rata share based on their hourly submissions. Got it. Totally, totally makes sense. So whittling that $750 million settlement down, we've got the, you know, let's say 30000 per you know, per plaintiff. How do the attorney's fees start getting negotiated amongst lawyers outside of what you just mentioned about the 10% to the steering committee folks? So for aggregators and litigators, it kind of goes this way. So let's just say Josh signs sides that I'm going to run advertising for mass store cases, but I am a tractor-trailer uh, lawyer, and I don't have time to process cases, talk to clients, and to keep up with the or the brain power, <laughs> or, or keep up. I've, trust me, I've met a lot of aggregators. That, I'm saying about that, myself. Uh, I don't have the brain power to do uh, what it is that you're uh, saying you're doing. But, but at, at any rate, you can passively do this, right? You can you can say I'm going to put money out and I'm going to collect as many of these contracts as possible, and then I'm going to send to Rob Hammers or Brandon Smith um, a, 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 a inventory of cases. These are my hundred contracts. And then my job will be to go through and determine from those hundred contracts, how many are really cases, right? Then once I get those cases, I settle them in the group when the settlement ends, either globally or by inventory, right? And then we would split the fee. So I would, the 10% would come off the top to the MDL and then we would be splitting that net attorney's fee of what was left. You'd be the aggregator paying for the advertising, and I would be the litigator. What about in the work. global setting? Is there arguments about, well, my client was hurt worse or my client's injuries were worse? So that means that, you know, does those conversations take place, or is it just everybody's getting the same amount? So that's, that is the part where advocacy matters, right? So when in, in any settlement uh, group, there's usually an appeal process. It's an administrative law function in which you say, I need you to consider these factors that you didn't look at within the grid of the matrix points that's been assigned to my claimant. And this case is important, and I want you to see it differently. And so most settlements hold a reserve amount, 10%, 12% of the entire settlement, so that the special master can entertain appeals of special circumstances. So you might have, like, let's say you have a base award of $50,000, $50, right? But your case was unique. You were hospitalized for seven months, right? Your medical bills were $800,000. And, you know, you completely recovered, but it was horrible at the time. And you only got 50 points because of the checks. But this dilemma that you went through, the special master gives you an additional 100 grand. That's advocacy, and that's how you add value to your claims. Got it. So I'm getting kind of jazzed up by your description of this. Maybe it's the champagne <laughs> that, that's adding, but it's it's very it's it's very exciting the way you describe it. Um, I think that I'm probably not you know in the market to get into it because I'm kind of set where I am and I've kind of got my niche. But I imagine other people listening might be like, I kind of want to do this too. Like you're you had a very unique entry into it. Uh, you're probably one of the few people that could actually pull that off. I mean, as a compliment. Um, but what about the person that is listening here or searching about mass torts, sees the advertisements on TV and is like, I kind of want to get in on this. Don't got a bunch of money. Don't got a big established firm. Like do they team up with someone like you or what, what is like the path to get in? Yeah. So 
uh, and thank you for that. Uh, and that's exactly right. So all of us as personal injury lawyers know that there's there's what we do and what we do well. And if you have a good swell of business and your business is growing and sometimes you have a good year and you hit your revenue goals and now you got a kind of a tax problem, you don't want to get more cases, you don't want to grow more, you don't want to staff out more, but you kind of have a windfall of cash. You can say, well, I'm going to do mass torts. And you can call up my firm and say, Rob, I'd like to do mass torts and we'll talk about which kind of cases still have good inventory out in the marketplace, you know, what they cost to get per contract, and we just do a deal. You give me the money, and I pay for the advertising, I get all the contracts in, I do all the work, and at the end of the case, we split the fee, and you get to be passively invested, you get to learn this enterprise, I send you all the reports, and we get to have, you know, cocktails and champagne, and go. I get to talk to you about, like, you know, nerdy stuff like Daubert and, and general and specific causation, and you get to be like, well, when am I getting paid, and I'll tell you, and, <laughs> like, you, know, and, yeah. you, did, and you did nothing, right? Yeah. And, and it's fun because it brought you, on your website, you've got a list of the products that you want you know your 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 network of people who you you reach through your own advertising efforts, and then you've got your own economic uh, windfall on a case, and you're like, well, you know, I don't really want to pay the taxes on this. I don't really want to to uh, pull it into the to the an investment field, but I'd like to do some mass torts. Well, then you you would rely on firms like mine that will help you with that. You get involved, and you have to do no more work. You have to add no more staff. Makes a ton of sense. So, uh, people listening want to do that. I would, I would suggest you know calling you, your firm, obviously, Brandon Smith. Again, I think very highly of guys like you would be a great way to kind of get in and start doing this stuff. So awesome! I hope some people get inspired. Yeah, and all, and also you know because Brandon and I are are, are, are pals and and we co counsel on so many things. Uh, oftentimes Brandon's doing a totally different project than me. So like when I say, oh man, I'm not in that project, you should call Brandon. I'm also a sounding board and a resource for that kind of decision. This has been fascinating, Rob. I hope that my questions lived up to, you know, your answers or at least at least gave you the you know kind of leeway or runway to to describe it because it's just it's fascinating to me. So thank you for explaining all that. Uh, you probably have hours and hours more you could could do. Maybe we'll have you back in a, in a few months, but I don't want to miss out on some some sports stuff and some hobby stuff that I know is also very important to you. Cool. Um, I'd love to spend the next 30 minutes talking about Georgia football and our, our national championship experience. We were together that game, um, but I don't want to overplay that. But I do want to talk to you a, a little bit about the tailgate that we were at beforehand and some stuff that, that you learned and some ideas that you may have. Look, um, NIL is, is super, super, super um, prevalent in what is in the discourse about college athletics now. But um, before we get into that, I just got to say go dogs. Um, because Go dogs. It was rad. Uh, you know, I, I have been to a lot of pain in my life. Uh, you know, I went to Georgia from 1995 to 1999, right? Like, I saw a lot of, a lot of mediocrity. Um, but, uh, but then, you know, Coach Rick came, and then I, you know, we had the 2002 Terrence drop and the 2007 Tennessee debacle and like just like the list goes on, on and on misery and, on. and misery I had two, I'm with Kevin Shires at the 2012 you know SEC championship national championship game um, and you know Conley's a great 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 dog damn good dog and I wish you to push that ball down or or Aaron would have spiked it right and so this this long long torturous life of a bulldog 
culminated to our chance to go to Indianapolis. Not the coolest city in the world. Especially first week of January. But it's near and dear to my heart. I've been to Indianapolis twice in my life. Once for a three-month IBC filter trial that we won, and for a natty, which we won. So I'm always going to love Indianapolis. You're on team Indianapolis. We found the dive bar of all dive bars to have one of the coolest tailgates I've seen. So I want to thank you for the invitation, for the hospitality, for the endless kegs of Coors Light. Stadium Tavern, Icon Source, deserves all of the credit on that. Um, They put it all together. They're the ones that are on the forefront of this NIL stuff, which I know that you're interested in. Yeah, and and, um, one last anecdote, and because I just... it resonates with me. Have any of you guys seen this new Suicide Squad movie that came out from DC? Where it's uh, you know, if you if you're a supervillain and you don't want to serve your life in prison, you can go on these death missions um, and and, uh, and shorten your sentence. And they had this character, the Weasel, and he he's in the first scene. He jumps out of the helicopter, but he can't swim, and he drowns and dies. No idea what you're talking about, but go on. First scene of the movie. So on the wall in this stadium tavern is this mask of like this Wolverine muskrat thing that's the ugliest thing I've ever seen and um and I was like oh my gosh there's the weasel's head so if you've seen Suicide <laughs> I didn't Squad, see that you know, one but I, I, will, I will text you the photograph of the, of the weasel but it ridiculous but the tailgate was fabulous and what I learned was is that your buddy from growing up has gotten partnership with uh, the butlers and um, and some of the other former Georgia athletes to start sponsoring uh, collegiate athletes with NIL deals, and we, as personal injury lawyers, could license athletes to help us with our promotion. And you're ready to rock and roll on that, right? So, like I told you, I was like, if I'm ever going to go the advertising route and that route, I got to just license Empty Hammer. Empty Hammer. On. I mean, like, I love it. It's I love tough. it. It's Hammer Time. Right? Hammer Time. I mean, <laughs> uh, your your last name is, of course, yeah. you know, Rob Hammers, and Hammer Time is 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 near and dear. So, Empty Hammer is going to be. Pimping out your firm within how many? How long? If if that was to ever happen, I'd have to give up going to court. So um, we'll just see how things go. Because because why? Because people would look at you and say different things, and yeah, there's there's a, a certain stigma. There's a certain amount of um, of <sighs> stigma with gimmicks, right? And when you go big and you start targeting people with gimmicks, your credibility with judges is is somewhat compromised. And you had MC Hammer, too legit to quit, you know, all over your your firm website. What do you think? Like it would be pretty rad. It'd be really rad. Like I wonder, I wonder what the number is for someone like him. I mean, what what what? Where is his kind of positioning? Along the uh, the celebrity spectrum, and we all love him, yeah. you know. But and I think he's around here. Um, so, so if it comes to that, if, if I come back and I'm not doing mass tours and there's, and there's TV commercials and billboards and jingles on, um, on the, uh, the FM radio stations, I will be able to give you that data. <laughs> so if I, if, if I were going to go that direction, I would probably hire Brock Bowers. I love him. Uh, you know, he can talk about how his pads and his offensive line protect him on the field, but the J Stein law firm protects him if he's ever in a car wreck, you know, something like that. Uh, I think he's one of our best players. His mom. Uh, actually, is a listener of this podcast. Well, we, I, we 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 have a connection with her through a couple of our other friends uh, out in Napa. Um, so I'm I'm on I'm on Team Bowers. Well, you know, remember Jerry Rice in um, in his um, golden career spent his workout summers sprinting hills in Napa, right? And when I saw the video of Brock Bowers, 18 years old during COVID, sprinting uh, sprinting up the hills in Napa, I was like, dude, what? 
He rules. He, I, because I, I'd, I'd make two steps, and whether or not I could sprint, as soon as I saw Graves, I'd just be lured in, you know. But, um, but yeah, he's definitely up there. I, I really loved John Morgan's, you know, size matters, and having, Brilliant. you know, Jordan Davis, Brilliant. who's like the best damn good dog of all time. Brilliant. Um, Brilliant. Just, yeah, John gets it. He gets it. So the shirt you're wearing is a martial arts uh, studio. Is that what you call it? That, that you're a, you're a Martial artist, is that the right word? Right. So, so we all as lawyers um, work a lot and are stressed out a lot. And our hours are long and our, and, and our commitment to fitness can fall off pretty easily. And several years ago, as I crossed the 40 threshold, um, my, my mortality started to set in. And my sedentary nature started to set in. So I started looking for something that I would want to do. And I wrestled in high school, and like wrestling is an unrealistic adult activity. I can see you on like you know, Vince McMahon putting on the. I'm never wearing a singlet again. Uh, it, it, for other people as much as for myself. Um, but at the end of the day, I was like, what would I want to do that would motivate me to stay um, uh, focused at getting better every day? And so I started looking for martial arts. and. I'm a dork, and I love science fiction and The Matrix. I just remember when Neo said, I know kung fu, right? I mean, come on. It's badass. Uh, it, it is badass. And so I want to know kung fu. So I started looking for kung fu, and, and I found out that kung fu is kind of like a, a general term for a, an overall Chinese discipline. And um, Wing Chun is basically a, a discipline of kung fu that's Chinese in nature. But Bruce Lee, when he came to the United States he started taking from boxing and from savat and from all these different disciplines of martial arts that are uh, that are you know practiced in the united states and taking from them and he came up with the way of the intercepting fist and they call it jungfeng gung fu jeet kune do and we could just call it jkd and this discipline is very very rare you don't find a lot of people who teach i've never it. heard of it Right. So I found uh, Sifu Suli Welch at the Welch Martial Arts Experience, and he trains in a multiple discipline of martial arts. And he has also, um, for old guys like me, a martial arts fitness class where it's core stability um, and martial arts cardio and, and intensive training in, in an hour process, and you can go like three days a week. So I started doing this process about four, three, three, four years ago, starting to get my conditioning, my stiffness, my you know, and, and as I've developed, he's continued to train me, and I'm still a complete beginner, um, but I'm learning Kung Fu, and awesome. it's pretty cool. So yeah. you'd, you'd kick my ass if we ever got into it, huh? No, but, uh, but, but, but I would at least uh, lose with one or two actual techniques. Um, but, uh, but with all humility aside, it is, it is an, a tremendous opportunity for guys like us in the law who, who have highly stressful jobs to improve your mental focus, to give yourself some, some, some balance and to um, improve your posture and your overall physical health by loosening up your hips, you know, uh, releasing some of the stress on your so lower back. So is it a combination of, like, you know, a traditional fitness routine where you go a couple days a week mixed in with learning fighting moves, and then are you training to be in any events, or is it more just I'm doing this for, you know, I want to be in good shape, I want to, you know, live my life better, think clearer, a little bit of both? 
I, absolutely. And realistically, you know, he sets your goals. Like I have a shirt on today on the back that says get better every day. And he quoted me on that because he, he asks you what your goal is. And then he, he designs and motivates you and, and, and invests in you. And, and it takes your excuses away. Sounds like a great guy, almost like a life coach a little bit. Yeah, I mean, like, really, like, sometimes God puts in your in your life people that need to be in your life when they need to be there, and he's certainly one of those people for me. Um, but, but realistically, like, if you want to be a lethal human being, he can teach you that, right? And if you just want to be able to protect yourself so you can get away, he can teach you that. I think the average person, me included, would be a little intimidated to start down the road of that kind of a program. Can anybody do it? Yeah, and and that's the best thing about his martial fitness system is that it's so geared towards kind of like your um, Orange Theory type of thing to where you're mixing in. Yes, you're doing kicking and punching and blocking and, and, and footwork and stuff, but those are all focused on physical fitness. It's it's core stability and and, um, and body strength and, and things that you just need as you get old. I mean, everyone in the class is old dudes, right? Like, I mean, it's a range of ex, ex-professional and, and collegiate athletes to doctors and lawyers and, and, and pharmaceutical salespeople. So if you would, maybe um, you know, send me his information, text me some of his stuff. I'll, uh, I'll include it in this. Um, you know, I, I blast these out on social media, so I'll, I'll include it in the comment section. I think a lot of people would you know, really benefit from someone, some program like that or someone like him in their life. I mean, I do Peloton. There's always some new thing coming out. You know, people want to be active. They get bored with what they're doing. So who knows? Maybe someone's listening to this and be like, that sounds freaking awesome. I'm going to do yeah, it. Yeah, it is awesome. And like, and the thing is what you said about the violence part is like, there's never any kind of like gung ho, like, you know, um, street fighter type of vibe. It's more really about like wellness and physical well-being but yes, if, if you commit the time and you stick to the disciplines, you could be pretty lethal. And he does, you know, he has the martial fitness, but he also treat trains in very Tai Chi, Wing Chun, Kali. Um, you know, <laughs> he actually does uh, Capoeira, which is like the Brazilian Jenga, um, you know, the wow. like dance and stuff. So you can kind of find your vibe and he'll help steer you in that direction. Well, if you end up in any sort of competitions, I don't care where it's at, let us know. We're coming to watch you. We'll cheer you on. Okay. I'm a long way away from that. But I will. Well, listen, Rob, this has been fantastic. You know, we could talk about all these individual subjects for for end of time. I've learned a ton. So thank you for sharing all that you have done and congratulations to, to where you're at and keep doing what you're doing. Okay. My friend, um, tell everybody your firm name website. You're, you're pretty active on social media. You've got a mass tort Monday program that you do. So where can everybody find you? So, um, schneiderhammers.com website. Um, we're on Instagram, Facebook, um, Twitter. Um, our social media is all at schneiderhammers. And then, um, you know, obviously, uh, you can always uh, follow our Mass Tort Monday, hashtag Mass Tort Monday, to watch my videos. I try to make them entertaining, only about a minute, so I can try to piecemeal you through the Mass Tort industry. Um, but that's pretty much it. And, man, thanks for this. This was so much fun. I, I, I really appreciate it. Um, what a great podcast. Good time. So these one-minute videos, how many takes it take for you to, to get, it, get it looking right? Some days, all day, for one one-minute video. Wow, wow. I don't have the patience. I do these videos. I'm like, one take, maybe a second. If I mess up, you know, so be it. I have good days. Um, 
Uh, but yeah, I've had some I've had some rough rides on uh, trying to get some contact out. Well, keep doing it, man. I enjoy it. So again, thank you. Thank you. And everybody else, thank you all for listening. Hope you enjoyed this uh, conversation with Rob Hammer. Hope you learned a little bit. We're entertained. If you enjoyed this, please listen to some others and uh, you know give us a review. And until next time, keep chopping. 